Thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, October 3rd, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen, here to discuss the consumer and retail sectors. I'm pleased to welcome SeniorFool.com contributor Asit Sharma back to the show. He's joining us via Skype from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Asit, good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, man. And listeners, good to be back. Uh, our main topics for today are recent earnings reports, uh, a bit early before the so-called official third quarter earnings season kickoff. But before we get to that, Asit, I know that you've wanted to talk about Adidas and the controversy surrounding the company recently due to some shady practices in the world of college sports. Uh, I've been following this as well. It's a very interesting look into kind of the underbelly of the NCAA and college sports. But late last month, federal investigators released details on uh, what amounts to be pretty significant corruption in the NCAA, which included the arrest of a global marketing director at Adidas. Um, there have been some rec- uh, resignations. There have been more allegations revealed. Asa, can you give us some details of what happened here? Sure. So the uh, complaint that you talk about was uh, unveiled on September 26th, and the one that we want to talk about related to Adidas uh, alleges that senior executive Jim Gatto um, participated in a scheme to steer a hundred thousand bucks to the family of a highly recruited player who is said to have been recruited by uh, Louisville's basketball program. So our listeners who are uh, avid basketball fans know about Louisville. It's a very uh, storied program, but it's had its uh, little shades with scandal through its head coach, Rick Pitino. And one of the consequences of this uh, complaint, criminal complaint, is that Rick Pitino has been uh, pretty much fired from Louisville. I don't know if he's, he's formally fired yet, but he's out. and. The other implication is for Adidas, which is a highly respected shoe company trying to make market share gains in North America against the almighty Nike. Uh, Adidas now has a little bit of shadow thrown into this, although management is saying that this is sort of a lone wolf and they, they are investigating. And you know what? If I was management of a global company like Adidas, I'd have the same line. We don't know anything about this, but we're investigating. So we'll see how all this shakes out. But the point that I wanted to make today for listeners is, isn't this story familiar? Don't we seem to hear every few years that there's some money being passed under the table that emanates from these big sporting companies who want colleges to wear their brands so that they can sell that gear? Uh, and the, the funny thing is the NCAA, which has very strict rules, it says its athletes are amateurs, they are a money-making machine. Uh, So I don't know if it's the big money that's chasing the NCAA that causes uh, this kind of underhanded bad stuff that shouldn't go on. Uh, Is it just bad eggs that pop up every once in a while? But man, we just seem to hear this with a regular cadence every few years. What are your thoughts, Vince? Well, when it comes down to it, in terms of the bottom line and the the opportunity or the potential that some of these star players present, even at, at you know when they're still just high school prospects, um, you know you think about the fact that for about ten years now the NBA has been una- unable to draft you know top talent directly out of high school. Um, but uh, 
when it comes down to it, the the biggest brands, the biggest sneaker brands, so like Adidas, which is making a push, like Nike, which is like the leader in the space, Under Armour, they still keep a very close eye on these youth leagues, these high school star players, and they have very strong incentive to push the best players to the schools that they're partnered with. You know, you mentioned Louisville and, and how that's kind of a center of this controversy. Well, Adidas paid $160 million for a 10-year deal with that university. Um, you know, it's the company's biggest ever college deal. So, as a result, um, you know, the college players at these schools, they get outfitted with the sponsoring company sneakers. So, when the stars go pro, they already have some of that loyalty to the company. And you, know, you mentioned the the bribe, I think it was around $100,000, but some of these other ones uh, that they've uncovered and are investigating were cited at uh, $100,000 or $150,000 with implications that competing companies were making counteroffers, bidding against each other for the best talent. So, uh, maybe this un- ends up unraveling in in, in Roping in other companies besides Adidas, but that hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars is a very small investment when you consider how lucrative it can be to sign the next, uh, you know, NBA superstar. And I'm dating myself a bit here, but about two years ago, I dedicated an episode of Industry Focus to cele- to celebrity athlete endorsements and the return on investment that companies might actually see from these kinds of deals. And when you consider the fact that you know um, Jordan is a multi-billion-dollar brand for Nike, um, companies are paying hundreds of millions of dollars to star players to give them their own sneaker lines um, of the biggest. Footwear, footwear deal earners uh, in the past year, the top four. So it's Jordan, LeBron, Durant, and Kobe. They earned $183 million in the past year. And those are all supported by Nike. Um, and Adidas has been pushing uh, its own efforts to lock down its own uh, big deals in the past two years since the new CEO took over the company. So when you have those kinds of numbers and how much uh, potential there is in the right name on a sneaker and how that can boost demand with consumers, it becomes obvious to me that a hundred thousand dollar bribe to win a player's loyalty earlier on in their career probably makes for a good investment, even if it's morally unacceptable. Or in this case, is going might result in some of these uh, legal issues. Um, I'm not surprised to hear about this. In a, we see it in the professional levels as well. Um, but let's move on to our uh, first earning story. Uh, after that kind of interesting sports uh, and 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 apparel update, but this one is looking at the uh, alcohol industry, and we have Constellation Brands. So that's ticker STZ. Uh, the company reported its fiscal second quarter results on October fifth. Uh, shares popped about four or five percent following the release. But looking out further, Constellation is actually up over 21% in the past year and almost 500% in the past five years, easily beating out the broadest P 500 and also its alcoholic beverage peers. Um, Asa, can you give us a rundown of the latest quarter um, and some of the big takeaway, takeaways that jumped out to you that are really driving such uh, impressive numbers for the company? Sure. So, in this latest quarter, uh, you mentioned the company grew revenue 3%. Um, that's not a lot of revenue growth. However, part of that was the company sold its Canadian wine business last year, which was a slow growth part of its revenue stream. And so it let go of some revenue, but its beer business managed to grow, I think, 13%. So that made up for a lot of that difference. The company, as of, as of its later, latest quarter, is about two-thirds committed to beer revenue and one-third wine and spirits. And what we saw in this most recent quarter is not just very good growth on the beer side, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but also 
growth in the wine and spirits business, even though it let go of the Canadian wine uh, business, depletions were up um, 5%. Now, for listeners, I want to read you a definition of what depletion is. You might hear us talk about this term sometimes uh, on Industry Focus. And hats off to Rich Smith. If you were to uh, Google up beer depletion, uh, Rich Smith, who is a colleague of ours, longtime full writer, uh, wrote an article several years ago. It's been five years ago. And his um, article comes up as one of the first search results because he's given such a great definition. It is, and I quote, refers to the rate at which beer already shipped from a producer like Boston Beer to a distributor leaves the distributor's warehouse en route to end users, i.e. drinkers. So here we're talking about wine. The Constellation Brands wine business saw depletions of 5% depletion growth. What that simply means is that uh, the distributors are sending uh, more wine uh, to their own retail outlets at that rate growth of 5%. So we always try to track two things. How much is the company actually selling and how much are the distributors selling? And depletions gives you that number. So positive sign there. I like that very much because uh, the beer business is really driving Constellation forward. So if the wine and spirits business is also growing, it take some of the pressure off that concentration. Um, so Vince, uh, you know, flip it back to you maybe to, let's talk a little bit about what beer has meant to Constellation Brands over the last uh, five years or so. Yeah, it's a uh, it's the most significant part of the business. Uh, when I checked, I think it was about 60% of their top line. And keep in mind that Constellation leads, uh, they very proudly uh, say that they lead the high end of the U.S. beer market, and this is powered uh, significantly by their imported uh, Mexican brand portfolio. So that includes uh, big names like Corona, Modelo, Pacifico, and uh, you know Corona being the biggest imported brand, while Modelo is the fastest growing. So um, the company said in the last quarter that its beer portfolio alone drove 60% of the growth in the premium U.S. beer market. So and on top of that, they're also expanding uh, into some craft and specialty beers, as we've seen a lot of the big brewing companies have done. Um, and they've done that through acquisitions, much like their competitors. So the their craft beer portfolio now includes also Ballast Point Brewing, which they acquired two years ago for a billion dollars, and Funky Buddha, which is the latest recent addition. Um, but this is also a, uh, an interesting case where you know while that imported portfolio is very large and do, doing very well, very strong, craft you know was also kind of the shooting star for a long time for the beer industry. Um, but several of the mega brewers, I think, are probably coming to regret. The price tags that they ended up paying uh, in that race to acquire all these craft breweries, and you know, Constellation itself took a ninety million dollar impairment charge during the quarter on Ballast Point, and I'd say that brand's probably no longer the focus it was, uh, it once was for the company, uh, especially when you consider uh, that. Uh, the Mexican imports like Modelo, like Corona, they're driving so much growth and winning shelf space at re- retailers, and they're taking that space not only from the big domestic brands, but also for some from some craft names as well. Um, but um, in terms of specific plans they have for this uh, recent Funky Buddha acquisition, I thought it was interesting to note during the the latest uh, earnings call, management does speak to how they're going to try and take a more, quote, professional approach to growing the brand. So they're going to stick to certain key tenets, like focusing on uh, a handful of key product offerings rather than 
than expanding with a bunch of products and just seeing what resonates with customers. They're also going to try and consolidate the distribution network and not expand geographically because Funky Buddha is best known in Florida before awareness of the brand itself has actually spread enough to sustain their uh, expansion efforts. Otherwise, uh, there's also uh, been some a push in investments at the company uh, in terms of their operations and their brewing facilities uh, and how they hope to see efficiencies come out of that to also help sustain this incredible growth they're seeing in their beer business. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that, Asit? Sure. So, uh, the company, very interesting listeners, the company was a less than $3 billion company in 2013 when it acquired these rights uh, to the Grupo Modelo's Mexican beer portfolio from Anheuser-Busch InBev, the world's largest alcoholic beverage company. Symbol BUD, listeners know it very well. But so interesting, so $3 million, this was in 2013, was their annual revenue. Constellation Brands has grown that revenue to almost $8 billion uh, through expanding this Mexican portfolio, not just uh, acquiring it and just putting it out there, but adding innovation to the product lines and scaling the distribution. There was a clue when the company made this purchase that revenues would continue to soar. Uh, It was a really subtle clue, but the company laid out a timeline of investing a couple billion bucks in manufacturing. And uh, here we are, I think five years later, the company will spend almost uh, $4.5 billion in the five-year period, which ends in 2019. It now has three breweries in Mexico and a glass-making facility. And this is something that uh, you can use as an investor if you want to know this age-old question, hey, will the company keep being able to to sell so much and the stock will keep popping? Well, if a beer manufacturer is investing billions of dollars in capacity over a five-year period, you know the demand is there. They wouldn't make that capital investment if they didn't think that the demand was tremendous. And lo and behold, year after year, they exceeded their earnings numbers. But I want to make the point to, to those of you who are out there who puzzle over these companies, if they had not made that investment, they wouldn't have had the sales. You can have a great product, but if you don't have the means to produce it and the, the demand is out there, you can't meet the demand, so your revenue can't grow. They did two things very well. Constellation Brands Management recognized that Mexican beers would continue to explode in popularity in the U.S., and they recognized that if they spent the money, uh, they would be able to make those sales, and that's what happened. Yeah, they, they were able to see just the in terms of the cat, the subcategories within the beer industry. You know, imported craft were driving the growth. And uh, you know they made their investments where they saw they thought it would give them the best returns. And in terms of the efficiencies and the, the profitability that they're seeing uh, from kind of uh, these investments in these facilities, you know, gross margin at Constellation is already up over seven percentage points in just the past three fiscal years, and it continues to tread trend upward. And the same goes for the bottom line as well. Um, but uh, you know, you mentioned the investment that the company's made. Uh, in order to meet that demand, and how it should be a good indicator of uh, at least their their long term outlook for the strength of that uh, Grupo Mandela portfolio that they acquired. Um, I, I also see a challenge there, though, going forward. Um, you know, beyond the discipline that they are able to maintain in terms of the specialty and craft segment, you know, the acquisition that they made, whether they want to do other uh, make other uh, deals. Um, I feel like. We've seen with how Kraft has, 
you know, gone through this incredible period of growth. Uh, all these companies were acquiring uh, popular craft brands, but now uh, we're seeing craft lose shelf space and uh, with retailers lose some of that cachet that it had. Um, it ultimately, you know, I feel like uh, the industry and its consumers can be a little bit fickle. So it'll be interesting to watch whether uh, the this Mexican import portfolio will be able to deliver, you know, this impressive growth year in year out and. I think it's important then what you mentioned earlier, Asit, the fact that you know they have beer, wine, and spirits at Constellation. So the fact that um, it, right now beer business being about two thirds of the company, um, as they kind of hopefully can diversify and right size that in terms of their uh, wine business, in terms of their spirits, and expand that as well. Uh, hopefully that reduces some of the risk that the company sees there. Uh, any fi- any final thoughts from you before we move on to our next uh, earnings take? Those are all great points. Uh, I know that you and I were trading some notes before the show, um, and we were talking about the Chilada drinks that Constellation Brands has introduced. So, Michelada, forgive my pronunciation, those of you who speak Spanish and speak it well. You got it well. But it's a, it's a type of very delicious uh, preparation of beer where you rim the uh, glass with salt, you add lime, some spices, sauces. Uh, the company's trying to recreate that experience in a bottle, which it has in the Modelo line, and it calls those chiladas. This is an example of really focused innovation. And what happened with the craft um, beers, which Vince was talking about, was the company got really excited about the soaring popularity of craft. And after the Ballast Point acquisition, it built a plant on the other side of the country. It threw a whole bunch of new brands out of Ballast Point at the market. The problem was that craft drinkers don't like beers which lose their taste after a few months. So if you see six brands where you're used to seeing like one great brand out of Ballast Point, you're not necessarily going to pick up those other ones. And then the next craft guy who comes in next week, he sees the when it came in, or she does, and doesn't want to buy the product. And they had a lot of products sitting on shelves. So two examples, focused innovation and just throwing something at the wall. And the company was um, ch- chastened in their most recent conference call that Vince was talking about. I think they'll be fine if they focus on what they know how to do well. Yeah, I think that's why they spoke about that more you know professional approach that they want to take, that more disciplined approach they want to take with uh, these new brand acquisitions, be it in the craft segment or uh, some of the other parts of the business in terms of spirits and wine as well. Um, Thanks again to Slack for supporting our show. Slack is a messaging app which brings all your team's communication together, giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible. We're huge fans of Slack here at Full Headquarters. Even among the industry-focused crew, we use it to save time and organize our podcast projects because it puts all of our tools and resources in one place. Between the real-time messaging, video and voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives, All in one easy-to-use app, I get less emails and no longer have to search through emails one by one to find that one note that I was looking for. There are more than 1,000 apps integrated into Slack, including Salesforce, Zendesk, and Google Drive. And with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly, you can always find what you need and pick up where you left off any place, anytime. To check out where work happens, go to slack.com. Again, to learn more, go to slack.com. So for our second piece of earnings coverage, uh, a company I don't think we've discussed too often uh, on prior episodes of Industry Focus, we have Yum China ticker YUMC. So Yum Brand spun off its China business this time last year. 
and with uh, Yum China licenses now the KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and other smaller brands from its former parent company. Uh, what amazes me about uh, this company is that it's the largest restaurant player in China with over 7,500 stores. Um, KFC and Pizza Hut make up the large majority of those locations. Um, though they do, though they are testing um, with some smaller concepts, but that kind of leadership position definitely has its benefits. So during the most recent quarter, same store sales were up six percent across the company. Most of that strength delivered by KFC. Uh, total revenue was up eight percent as well, topping two billion dollars. So one year into the spinoff. It appears that we have a very smart deal. Yum originally spoke to the idea that an independent China business would allow that entity to focus more on the conditions that are unique to the Chinese market. So, I said that seems to be proving out here. But what is it about the Chinese market that kind of made this such an effective split? What were some of the considerations that they had to to make? Yum, uh, Yum Brands, when it owned the total business. Had a few stumbles. Um, consumers may remember a few made headlines in 2012, 2014, and 2015. These were primarily supplier problems. Yum Brands had a really fast-growing business in China, but it hit a wall with trying to manage the business from afar. And management finally realized that this strength that it had been posing to investors for years as the save-all for the company was actually both a strength and a huge weakness, and that the um, unit which exists on the mainland would be better managed by its own self, and given a chance to expand and focus locally, it would prosper versus young brands trying to control it and simultaneously um, make that huge North American business continue to grow. We talk about this a lot on the show, comparable store sales, that's always the marker that you've got to meet every quarter. So the company decided, let's spin off Yum China, and which is symbol, as you said, Vince, Y-U-M-C, and let that take its uh, innovations into the market without us having to approve it from the United States. And that's worked out very well. I want to talk a little bit about some other considerations that come into a decision like this that are particular to China. China is a really hard market to crack, as you probably heard if you invest in any companies that are over there. Number one, the Chinese government has a love-hate relationship with foreign brands. It wants uh, those brands to come in because China is gearing its economy from manufacturing towards consumption. It wants people to consume, so it would be, look more like the U.S., which is less of a manufacturer now and more of a consumption-based economy. But it is a tightly controlling governmental apparatus, and there's a lot of red tape. So companies find themselves very often. McDonald's has had this problem. Um, Starbucks even has had problems with the Chinese government that they can very arbitrarily come in and um, put pressure on a certain city's restaurants so that that company then has to lose comparable store sales and regroup to whatever the, the government is asking it to comply with. Number two, um, the consumer in China loves foreign brands as well, but has a deep-seated loyalty towards the Chinese economy. So once a Chinese consumer becomes bored of a KFC, which is owned by Yum China, that consumer will start looking for what local brands are around um, and out of a sense of whether it's nationalism or patriotism, uh, this is something that you have to grapple with when you do business in China. You've got the customer's loyalty only so long. You're only so good as your next innovation. Um, 
Third is the supply chains problems that I referenced. You have to have a very tight control over your suppliers. In China, what we've seen over the years is that suppliers don't have the same standards uh, that are already in place, maybe in the U.S. or in Europe. And that's not saying anything bad about uh, the supply in China or how their rules operate. It's just a younger economy that's not had the decades of regulation that you would see here in the U.S. So you're going to have people that cheat sometimes. And again, this this also happened to McDonald's, a bad supplier, um, especially with chicken. It seems to be endemic to these companies. If you're doing business in China, watch your chicken supplier. I think that's the message. But this is something that is very difficult to keep an eye on through third parties or, again, manage from a remote location like the U.S. So all of these problems were solved a bit when Young China became its own company and could manage things locally in China. Thanks, Asa. I think that's a good rundown on some of the risks that you faced. Even though you have a company with, uh, you know, such what appears to be such strong tailwinds behind it, shares are up over sixty percent just in twenty seventeen. Management says the company's on target to hit expansion of five hundred and fifty to six hundred restaurants this year. They just initiated a dividend at ten cents per share. Their continu- uh, management continues to repurchase shares, um, but overall, I think uh, they definitely have a very, um, a very positive. Environment to work in as well, in that uh, you know they've been growing their store base for several years at a compound annual rate of 11%, thanks to you know this market's growing middle class, and they're not running into the kind of saturation issues that U.S. chains have encountered with the so-called restaurant recession. Um, but uh, we have our last minute or so here. Uh, any last thoughts for you uh, from this earnings report or for the company um, before we close out? I love that. Uh, Young China is pursuing a lot of innovation, and this is what investors may want to keep an eye on. Uh, There's a new store in the city of Hangzhou, China, which is KFC um, Pro. And in this store, you smile to pay. So you walk up to a machine, and in partnership with Alibaba's Ant Financial, KFC China will take a picture at the kiosk, you enter your phone number, you got to smile so that it sees that you're not a static photo, and that's the way that you pay for your meal. And they offer roast chicken, a brand new menu. They're constantly innovating, testing prototype stores for this younger generation of Chinese consumers. Just you know, one batch of these is a couple hundred million of, of people. So you gotta like that if you're a long-term investor in Young China and free from their parent company, they're pursuing innovation um, in a pretty aggressive way. And that's something else that will show up in future earnings reports, in my opinion. All right. Well, thanks, Asit, for joining us. And thanks, Fools, for listening. Remember that people in the program may own companies discussed on the show. And the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Fool on. <laughs>